0: Hello, friends. Nico here from the GeekCast Live, and you are proudly listening to the Movie Podcast Network.
1: Hey there, Cartoon Joe here. If you like what we do, head on over to Patreon.com for special extras and crispy num-nums that you can get for just a few dollars a month. That's Patreon.com slash GeekCast Live. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or YouTube, or follow us on
2: SoundCloud. Be sure to comment, like, review, leave cynical comments, or call Nick mean names.
3: He likes when you do that. Like books? Hate to read? Have ears? Like to listen? Well, we have a solution. Audible.com, where there's over like a million or something books that you can listen to with your ears. Go to audible.com slash geekcastlive for a nice kick in the pants. We'll do it live! It's a trap! You cannot Hi, Knuckles. Go ahead. Welcome to the episode. I'm your substitute, Miss Chokes on Dick. There he is, one nine of the Geek Cast Live podcast. I am your host, GCR, and with me, as always,
1: Rob Bass. Uh, it's Nico. And Cartoon Joe. Good to have you back, buddy.
2: Well, how are we doing?
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: I, I'm good because, in the midst of all my um, tribulations and whatnot, I sat down the other night. Um, for my nightcap and stress reliever and, you know, sitting down to watch something with the wife as we try and do. And she's like, you know what? I, I taped, uh, I taped a couple episodes at South Park. And I said, why did you do that? And she's like, I don't know. Can we, and, uh, and so we watched like, like two, actually taped them. Yeah. on like, a, VHS. Like with a Yeah. Like a, w- yeah. Well, she was going to DVR and then she's like, uh, nope, old I, school. I really want to, I want to have the moment. So she unpacked. The, yeah. Uh, the, the okay. VHS.
3: I can respect cassette that. Box. She, she wanted a little bit of nostalgia to go right. into South Park. Yeah.
0: So um I manually fast forward through uh grainy South Park episodes, but it's one of those things it's it's I, I probably hadn't watched it in aside from the occasional clip that you send, probably in six or seven years, like an actual episode. And uh that's just an amazing thing in, in every way. Isn't it? For its longevity, for it's what it started out as, for the, the roster of celebrities that have appeared on it, for it's just absolutely spot on, vulgar, vulgar in all the right ways writing.
3: Hey, what was it like using the tracking function on your VHS remote? Was that?
0: Um, it, it was. It was tough because I, I'm like. A, I like my three squiggly lines on the top of the screen instead of Lindsay's on the bottom. Of th- yeah, Lindsay's a three yeah. squigglies
3: on the bottom type. So. I'm with you, man. I like mine up at the top too. It's more like a letterbox feel that way.
0: But uh, it, it was good, and it made me laugh, and I needed a good laugh, and uh, so there you go. There's my south park start off.
3: I don't want to make myself sound. Uh, older than I am, or disrespect our two younger co-hosts. But I, I don't know if you guys grew up. Did you guys grow up with the VHS, or were you just were, Was it right in the DVD for you?
4: Uh, I grew up.
1: Oh on no, VHS. I, I, yeah, same. I don't so know when... that I ever used the tracking function or know what it is.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, I'll oh, but well,
0: it's
1: when I... it's when you get
0: like when you get like a third hand borrowed VHS with about six hours of Friends episodes, but it was taped on somebody else's like Panasonic. Device mm-hmm. when you throw it into your RCA device, it just doesn't play quite right, and it's kind of like your uh your I don't know your so tuner. There's like some there's like, like it's been some
3: dubbed. There's like some distortion. That's what basically what it is it's like a tuner, like you know, like you a like a radio station that's just not quite in. Well, the mm. VHS wouldn't quite be clear. It was never a clear picture <laughs> anyway. But there was always like there might right. be like seven lines running through the screen. You adjust your tracking up or down, and it might go from seven to two. Or seven to nine if you go the wrong way. Oh, gotcha.
0: Yeah, it's kind of yeah, almost. It's almost like working the rabbit ears. You know, you could lose the picture completely, <laughs> real easy. But
3: uh, I
2: get that reference.
3: Did you I guys did have? Did you guys that. by chance have the uh, the separate VHS rewinder? Hell yeah, I did.
0: Yes, the please be kind <sighs> rewind when you have yeah. to go to the video store and yeah, mm-hmm. yep. Did anybody, were... did anybody think it was? Did ever think it was really cool when you ever got the uh, your VHS slash DVD? Oh yeah, the, t- oh, the two, yeah. in two one. Oh yeah, I my just got ha-
3: ha- red of mine. Yeah, my mom at one point owned a VHS DVD machine, where did play both, right? Because you know yeah. we, they were, it was like the transition period. Uh-huh. She mm-hmm. also owned a a CD dubbing machine. Where you'd put like you'd put like Vince Gill the actual album in this CD slot, and then the other CD slot you'd put in like the CD RW. Oh, I remember those. And it'd close it, and it would it would write the disc off the disc because you did you couldn't do it on your computer. Like if you wanted a CD like a CDR drive, um, you had to buy like a four hundred dollar machine that just did that. It's priceless for uh, mixtapes post cassette post cassette mixtapes well that's the thing that i don't i don't believe no you could it was a here's pain a in the here's ass a just a tra- like i just want track 6 from Vince Gill well here's a
0: dating <laughs> reference and, and maybe Ryan but probably not i know, we know you know zygotes never did but do you ever make <laughs> do you remember ever making a cassette audio cassette mixtape just off of radio songs
3: yeah hell
2: yeah i've
0: heard about it that's that was a thing <laughs> i saw it in stranger
2: the, things I think. The,
1: elders, <laughs> the elders passed it down as a lesson in wisdom <laughs> <laughs> and then i was circumcised and went on a vision quest <laughs> I, I like to do that in reverse order but it's, yep
3: vision it's quest around. circumcision uh radio mixtape right oh yeah. man yeah i tell you what it was uh yeah, the very first DVD we ever owned was um Gladiator. Are you not entertained? Mm. That was the very that first That was your th- first DVD. That was the first okay. D- DVD we ever owned. That was the cuz mom and dad bought a DVD player having no idea that they w- couldn't play their VHS tapes on it. Mm. No way. So they they Makes were like sense. they were like, "Oh, yeah, a DVD player. Everybody's getting one. I guess we'll get one." And they were like, "How do you get this confounded rectangle in that circular hole?" <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't figure and it, it was like mom you need to go. So I was uh, Well first, first you have to save a link directly to your desktop <laughs> 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 ah, fucking brilliant. That was oh. I was
0: noticed. I was out of the house before the D V D revolution came in, so I, I only had the VHS experience.
3: I don't during, remember uh, my adolescence. We never had a laser disc, so I can't. I don't have any. Nope. I skipped over that. I have. I have no sort of anything that has to do with laser disc. Any memories of that at all? I remember having laser discs in school. Mm -hmm. Like we had the audio visual laser disc, and then we also had the like the reel to reel machine in school. Nice. Um. Yeah, I was. I was VH those big like clunky Disney like boxes hmm Oh yeah. That's something
0: else. I still uh well I shouldn't say I, because it's I don't I don't have it's in my parents' home, but I'm pretty sure there's still the entire VHS ginormous case collection of every Disney movie ever. <laughs>
3: that was like cherished. Oh yeah. God forbid you put red knobs and are. broomsticks in the sword and sorcery case. <laughs>
0: Oh no! Be held to pay.
3: <laughs> I meant to say, sword hey, in the or stone. Or if
0: you loaned it out, like you, you never loan out like your sword in the stone copy, it won't. It, it takes six months for it to come back, and it won't be rewound. Definitely not. It's probably Animals. scratched up too.
1: It's
2: just <laughs> a barbaric society. We we, live we
3: in. were barbarians in the early nineties, Robert. We were fucking barbarians. Ryan, were you are you old <laughs> enough
0: to have ever, um. Enjoyed the the Betamax player to watch porn. I mean to watch Grazer regular movies. grazers starting to
4: show.
1: <laughs> I, I Did never... you just say brazers? I, I said yes. Yep, the brazers <laughs> are glowing.
3: They're properly whatever
2: good. I said before is not
3: as right. good as that. Nix it because that's what I said. <laughs> no, I never Betamax either. Although it was my uh, it was my award winning uh, before and after uh, Facebook name Betamax Hardcore. I do recall. So I got an award for that, I believe. You know what this trip down memory lane makes me want to do? Uh, yes.
1: Make some money using your mom's VHS to DVD machine? <laughs> yes. That's, yeah,
3: that's what it makes me want to do. There's a person in town here who charges like $30 a pop. I I don't doubt. I, are you in Frog Froghamper? Mm-hmm. I have no doubt. I'm surprised that there's not more like... Like, no, I, I make uh, candles out of tallow. I'm surprised there's not more of that in your town.
1: <laughs> there is there is plenty of that here. There's like a twine maker. <laughs> the, uh, the pharmacy. Twine. uh There's like an apothecary <laughs> yep. in my town. Nice. That's unsurprising.
3: Mm-hmm. So I'll take that. a picture of it tomorrow uh, before I move out. And a, and like a farrier. Like he only does horseshoes. <laughs> there, I'm, you're not even, I'm not
1: even fucking with you. There is one of those here. <laughs>
3: Yep. Is, it, is there also a
0: cooper and a cobbler? Uh,
1: still No, that's over. Uh, two towns over.
3: Is it, is it still a serfdom? Mm.
1: No, they upgraded
3: a fiefdom. In, oh, it's a, it's a fiefdom. No,
1: Connecticut's a republic.
3: Oh, okay. Makes sense. <laughs> if you can keep it. <laughs> the republic of Connecticut. <laughs> White people. Uh, speaking, yeah. <laughs> speaking of speaking of white people, we we have a an early do review guest, which is something we've never done. I'm excited. We've never had white
1: people on the show. Groundbreaking. <laughs> uh, yes, sir.
3: We've ever had white people on the show.
2: It's really hard to see color through a microphone.
0: Not really. Crackers sound like crackers. <laughs>
1: I just heard the sound of somebody, like, crumbling some saltines.
0: I, I wish. Put it in there, Tilly. Really.
1: That's what
3: I heard in my head. I had... Sorry, I had to... I was getting ready to add our guest. I had to mute you. Uh, because my TV just uh, started playing. Mm-hmm. Oh, Playing what? No, ghost
2: television. Baseball. Not even,
3: I was saying,
1: not even a year old. And your, go- your house is haunted.
3: Well, that'd be my luck.
1: You... Anyway... <laughs> Did you make sure that it wasn't built over an Indian burial ground?
3: No, I'm not. Uh, uh, I didn't Craig T. Nelson proof my home, no. <laughs> uh, that so, was your first mistake. Speaking of uh, ancient Indian burial grounds and Craig T. Nelson, we do have a guest for our due review. And if you listen to the Sci-Fi Podcast, you'll know who he is because he's got the biggest brain in Podcastum. Is that correct?
4: I hope so. <laughs> I would, uh, I'd be very happy if that was true.
3: What the hell? Biggest brain <laughs> in podcasting. How you doing, buddy?
4: Very good. Thanks for having me on.
3: No, well, did you just hang up on me to bring on a guest? No, we brought on a guest, and then the Skype just. We just, we, we should have just hung up on you. You don't guests. have an avatar, Fair. so it kind of just. Bumps you just down. Just happens, you know. You know I hate Avatar. We <laughs> talked about this
0: <laughs> repeatedly
3: so brain we we had to bring you on because this is over our this is over our skis sure um there was an article, and I, I'm gonna paraphrase it, but basically um, there's another me in another multiverse now that's they've <laughs> they've proven that i'm uh, uh, I'm like Rick Sanchez sure hopefully <laughs>
4: um so you're talking about the uh the one uh, article on. The cosmic microwave background cold spot, right? Yep, that's it. That's the one. Yeah. So what do you think of that?
3: Well, I don't know what to suss out of that article because I, you know, I guess I
4: I kind of want to believe
3: it, I guess, maybe.
4: Yeah. Do you know what the cosmic microwave background radiation is? Let's start there. Sure. <laughs> so our entire universe is filled with something called the cosmic microwave background radiation. Uh, what this is, is the leftover energy from uh, the expansion of the universe, the Big Bang, essentially. Um, and if, if you picture, say, uh, a fireball about the size of a balloon, it's very hot and very... Really Dickless.
3: <laughs> when you just when you just come on when you just Sorry. come on the show with a uh, really dickless right in the middle of an explanation of the uh, uh, and he's off the show again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, man. So you were saying Big Bang Fireball Balloon. <laughs>
4: yeah. Okay. So here's 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 how you can picture it. You have a balloon that's about the size of like a fireball. It's extremely dense and extremely hot. And as you expand that fireball outwards all of that energy contained in there is going to take up much more space, which will essentially cool its temperature and distribute the energy throughout the new space that it is taking up. And as this balloon gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, it's going to the temperature of it and the energy is going to drop more and more and more and more. Essentially, the cosmic microwave background radiation is... That radiation that at the time when the uh, expansion of the universe happened, it was the intensely hot fireball that caused everything to start moving away from each other. And now it is just um, what is remaining of all of that energy. And it is fairly evenly distributed throughout our universe. Okay. Okay. So what
2: exactly is this cold spot then, and how does that play so, into this uh, background radiation? Sure.
4: So what I'll, I'll, I'll kind of tell you – yeah, I'll tell you what the cold spot essentially is, and I'll go into details of sort of um, what some of the theories are, but I'll sort of zero mm. in on what most astronomers think.
3: There's a, there's a cold spot on my pillow, mm. but it, I don't know if it's the same – as what we're talking about here.
4: You know what? My, my wife got me for Christmas a cold pillow. Have you ever had a cold oh, pillow?
3: No. No? It sounds
1: amazing.
4: Yeah, it's fantastic. Is it like a heat
1: sink for your face?
4: Yeah, it is. It, it literally pulls the heat out of one side of it and over to the other. So if awesome. I put my arm under it, my arm is warm, but my face is cold because it's pulling all of the heat out of my face over to my arm. It's fantastic. It's really Cause nice. it works Because it only works in one direction. You have to sleep on the right side of it. I've accidentally flipped it over before and woke up <laughs> sweating.
3: Woke up like a Nazi who just looked at the Ark of the Covenant.
4: Exactly. Melting. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, sorry. Oh, yeah. Cold spot. So uh, the cold spot. So um, – cosmologists okay so the 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 cosmic microwave background is studied by cosmologists cosmology is a branch of physics that studies the universe in the macroscopic scale so you've got particle physicists quantum physicists who study the ultimately small and you have everything in between there all the way up to guys who study everything in the as big as it gets and those we those guys we call cosmologists they work in a branch of astronomy and astrophysics um and essentially, uh, they define our universe, the distribution of this cosmic microwave background, as something called isotropic, or uh, that's a, one of the scientific terms for it, also called homogeneous, meaning that it is evenly distributed like peanut butter spread across a piece of bread, right? It's just evenly distributed with slight fluctuations here and there. Sorry, that's my phone. Turn it off. There we go. Uh, (laughs) With slight fluctuations here and there that are uh, remnants from the universe pre-Big Bang. Um, So the universe is isotropic and homogeneous. Uh, We have this evenly spread, smooth peanut butter, no chunks. Uh, So the cold spot is a variation in this radiation, this leftover energy, that is cooler than the average standard deviation of what we're finding. So let me give you some numbers, because that might make more sense. So um, essentially, at the moment that this radiation uh, did something that we call decoupling, it decoupled from the matter of the universe and became non-interacting. And the moment that that fireball started expanding was about... 378,000 years after the Big Bang. So the Big Bang happens, expansion is happening, the fireball decouples from matter and becomes its own radiation um, at about 378,000 years. At that moment, it was approximately, if we, if our calculations are right, it was approximately 3,000 degrees Kelvin. Um, 3,000 degrees Kelvin is... I don't know a roughly lot. hot. Yeah, it's, it's very hot. It's, yeah, thirty-five hundred. Yeah. It's hot, but I mean, it's not as hot as the sun. The sun is fifty-eight hundred Kelvin, so it's hot, but it's, it's how do hot you calculate
0: ball. those two numbers? How do you calculate a Kelvin temperature rating and a
4: and a Fahrenheit? A
0: life? Well, no, and a and a lifespan of cosmic oh. matter.
4: Oh, oh. Um. So if you're going from temperature to how long ago that was? Is that what you're asking? Not
0: not the correlative, but how, how do you calculate either one of those two numbers?
4: Um, so they're calculated from multiple variables, including... So what we do is we find the redshift of the universal scale of uh, galaxies at multiple distances. That gives us the Hubble constant... Uh, which is the rate at which our universe is expanding, and then we can reverse uh, by measuring what the current redshift, or sorry, what the current temperature of the microwave background radiation is. We can reverse all of those effects and bring it back to that moment when it decoupled.
0: Are you making up terms just because you know I'm dumber than you?
4: Nope, because <laughs> I think I, I think you just
0: started naming off stuff That'd you saw fantastic. in your kitchen. Redshift I, like, and, I, and like... Hubble Samson, and if you reverse osmosis it, yeah, then so I, you give like this you number. could
3: very easily be verbal Kent talking to Chaz Pelman. Right, and I got nothing. <laughs> no, no it was uh,
0: absolutely nothing. Well, eh, honestly, uh, content. Red, Redshift, oh, yeah.
1: Redshift is a great flavor of Four Loko. Oh,
4: yeah.
0: <laughs> sounds like a like a X-wing squadron.
4: <laughs> well, so. <laughs> What red shift means is, uh, so on our visible spectrum, the reason we call it red shift, we also have blue shift for other things. So there's red shift and blue shift. And essentially what that means is red is on one end of the spectrum of what we can see and blue is on the other. When you look at a rainbow, you have blue and violet on the bottom and you have red on the top. So... Mm -hmm they're on the opposite ends of the spectrum. What that indicates is that red is actually a very long wavelength of light and blue is very short. And all the other colors we see are in between those two wavelengths. So when okay. we say something is red shifted, what, what that's sort of a terminology for is when we look at it, the wavelength of light we expect to see is getting longer and longer and longer. So it's shifting towards the red as opposed to shifting towards blue, which would mean that the wavelength's getting shorter and shorter. So that this is all um, surrounding something called the Doppler effect. So if you have stood on the side of the road and heard a car coming towards you and you hear the characteristics... Zoom! Right. It, the the mm-hmm. frequency of the engine seems to go up as it approaches you and then it goes down as it goes away from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that is the exact same anomaly with um, acoustic waves. So as the source of sound approaches you, the waves are compacting upon each other uh, due to the velocity of the source. And that frequency is getting shorter and shorter and shorter, sounding higher and higher, higher pitched. As it moves away from you, those wavelengths are getting longer and longer and longer. And therefore, the the frequency of the shift is going down. And so you hear it as if it's going down in frequency. The exact same thing happens with electromagnetic radiation, which is what light is. So when something's moving towards you, if it's perfectly white, you'll actually see it as slightly blue. But as soon as it starts moving away from you, you'll see it as slightly red.
3: That's fucking awesome.
4: Yeah, that's how we measure the rotational velocity of the sun. It's how we measure how quickly we're rotating through the galaxy. It's how we measure how fast the galaxy is moving in relation to other galaxies. Is all by the spectrum of light that these galaxies are giving off and whether or not they're blue or red shifted and how much they are.
3: And because of all of that, nice. you can tell how hot the background radiation was or is yeah, and then because of that, when there's a void in that known heat, there's a yes. cold spot.
4: Yes, so there's an anomaly. An, yeah, there's an anomaly in the background radiation. So to give you numbers now, uh, we had that fireball at the moment of the ba- of of uh, the delocalization when the radiation uh, became its own thing and stopped interacting with matter. And that was about three thousand degrees Kelvin. And today, it measures at two point. Let's see. I wrote it down because it's a long number. Uh, measures at what's roughly two point seven two five four eight, I believe, uh, Kelvin. So to j- just j- uh, roughly three degrees Kelvin, right? Three degrees Kelvin would be. I'm doing the conversion to Fahrenheit in my head. Sorry. Uh, three degrees Kelvin is negative three, three eighty something in Fahrenheit, and negative two hundred and seventy three degrees Celsius, so roughly. Cold, roughly. Yeah, as as cold uh, <laughs> as cold as we can get anything. It's it's actually colder than anything on Earth. Colder than we can make liquid helium. Colder than anything that we've ever done in a laboratory. It's it's incredibly cold, but. It's not zero. It's it's a non-zero uh, value, therefore it's very significant. Now the fluctuations that we see in this microwave background radiation are on the order of millionths of a Kelvin. So point zero 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 one is where we look for fluctuations in that temperature. So we have you know two point seven two five. Several other digits, and then we look for variations in fluctuation down around the sixth digit past the decimal point.
0: Um, so fluctuation slash anomaly is actually kind of a
4: yeah, very you know, st-
0: loosely applied.
4: Yeah, it's a statistical term. So this uh, so the average uh, the average fluctuation in the background radiation is about point. Or is about 20 uh, microkelvin. So 20 microkelvin up and down. Um, when you look at something like the what's called the W map, which is the map of the background radiation, or if you look at the Planck map of the background radiation, which is much higher resolution, you see all these. Uh, you see basically a field of blue with all of this red and yellow splotches everywhere. And all of that temperature variation that is the blue and red. Uh, and all the variants in between, is fluctuation on the order of 20 microkelvin, so 20 millionths of a kelvin. The cold spot, the reason it's significant is that the error says that it can't go any further than about uh, that those 20 microkelvins up and down, but the cold spot is 70 microkelvins colder than any of the local area around it. So by by local area, what I mean is the cold spot is about 2 billion light years across. And uh, 2 billion light years across, for the cold spot, they're looking at an area that is several parsecs across, uh, meaning it's it's roughly 6 to 10 billion light years across. That's the local area of where the cold spot is. And the cold spot itself is an area that's about... uh, you know, a fifth of what they're looking at. And it's, it's significantly colder outside of the, the margin of error in that spot. Um, the fluctuation in that spot, the reason it's colder there is you don't have any lumin- lower density of luminous matter in that area. Luminous matter being anything you can see. Stars, galaxies, um, nebula, gases, dust, all of that.
3: So so how do they get from that to mm-hmm. well it must be because another universe has bumped into <laughs> the radiation there right? at that point.
4: It seems <laughs> how like do a it seems like a leap. <laughs> so so the first thoughts about this this cold spot was that it was something called a supervoid. Because they have found voids in the cosmic microwave background, areas where there's much lower density of luminous matter, where the temperature is is is, you know, lower than the expected error margin. But they're very, very small. They're on the order of 100 to 1000 times smaller than the cold spot. So they thought, oh, well, maybe this is the first time we've ever found this just massive, you know, cold spot that we're not we're just kind of not sure what it is or why something so big would form when we don't see one anywhere else in the microwave background. Um, but what they ended up doing was looking at this area uh, with, with much more precision with the Planck telescope and discovering that the density of galaxies in that uh, cold spot is only roughly 10% lower than all of the area around it. So there is slightly less luminous matter um the average for the area that they're looking at should be roughly a hundred thousand galaxies and they're short 10,000 galaxies. Um, and to, to look, to look at the literature, A lot of people who don't understand what they're talking about who have just quickly read Wikipedia or something will say, like, there's 10,000 galaxies missing from this area. It's just a big black hole of space where there's not 10,000 galaxies. No, there's 90,000 galaxies there. We just thought there would be 100,000 galaxies. (laughs) So it's not that there's just nothing there. It's just that there's less than we expected. And so that causes... um, Uh, the light, the electromagnetic radiation of the cosmic microwave background to sort of elongate and stretch out due to gravitational effects and so you get this colder spot where the wavelength is longer and so you get a a temperature drop there Um, so they're they're not sure, most cosmologists are not sure exactly what causes, uh, what has caused that to happen but recently several uh, sort of Fringe uh, physicists have started to say, well, this is evidence that our universe has collided with another universe. And here's why they make that claim. There's a very popular model in uh, Big Bang expansion theory that is a balloon. That's why I used the balloon to explain the fireball. And the way the universe is expanding is similar to a balloon. There is something called the principle of equivalence in cosmology, where basically it states that anywhere that you stand in the universe and and look in every direction, it will basically look exactly the same. So that's the principle of equivalence. The way that they explain that is they say, okay, imagine taking uh, an inflatable balloon that's very... Small, say six inches across initially, and you draw a series of dots all around this thing symmetrically. So it has like a grid of dots everywhere. And you say that one dot is your galaxy. Now, as you inflate that balloon, every other galaxy in every direction looks as if it's moving away from you, no matter which direction you look. But that also holds for standing on any other dot at any other point. So that is how they explain why the expansion of the universe looks like everyone is moving away from us in, in various directions. Um, in Well, in every direction that you look, everybody is moving away from us. All the galaxies are moving away from us, um, except for our very local <clears throat> group held together by gravitational forces. Um, so what what the idea is with the whole, this could be another universe, imagine... If at the very beginning, when you had this small balloon, before you started blowing it up, there was another small balloon next to it, and it started blowing up either before or roughly at the same time as your balloon, and those two balloons touched in a way that that balloon pushed into the surface of our balloon, stretching an area of our balloon an extra amount, that would cause the the temperature the the light to essentially have to travel a longer distance around that curve that it's causing as it bulges into us and it would effectively drop the temperature in that area hmm. now the the way that cosmology works which is far too complicated to cover in you know, a few minutes, is that we would actually need to see that same effect on the opposite end of the, the cosmic microwave map. And to date, we haven't seen that at all. We would have to see a cold spot that is symmetrically opposed to the original cold spot in the northern hemisphere of the cosmic microwave background. And we just haven't seen that yet. And there's ultimately no evidence that that is what would happen if another universe collided into us. Um, the, the multiverse theory is so, hmm, there's so many facets to it that in modern day physics, it's, it's looked at more as like a, either fringe physics or it's sort of a, a philosophical idea at this point because it hasn't developed any testable sorts of uh, evidences. Um, I'm primarily an experimental physicist so if if there are scientists out there listening to this they'll understand why I characterize it this way but physics is when you either predict something with math and then you have a way to test for it or it's when you observe something from a test and you develop an explanation for it using math. That's essentially physics. As soon as you have a, a math Say, a mathematical theory that's untestable. Math actually sits in the realm of philosophy at that point. And it this is just a theoretical uh, philosophy until we have some sort of testable thing. And so a lot of people who like to believe in um, the multiverse theory because it supports string theory, um, you know, they're looking at every possible instance for evidence because, Uh, it would help validate what they do. You know, it it would help validate their lifetime of, of work. And that's essentially what it comes down to. So what, what uh, I'm sorry to just keep talking, but I've only got a few more minutes to No This is, this is fucking (laughs) fantastic. So so let me tell you what most astronomers think uh, the, the cold spot is today. Um, I, I, spoke with one of my colleagues. I went and ate lunch with him today to ask him what the modern sort of thought on this was, because I've read all my textbooks on it. I, I, you know, I know what all of, I've known all of this, that I've come up to this point, but the most recent theory is the most disappointing of all, Ryan. I'm very sorry to break your heart. Here <laughs> in a second. But uh, essentially the, the, the explanation, the way we can calculate all of these things, um, the way we can you know, back calculate to the temperature at this point and back calculate to the types of particles that existed at this point is because we initially create models. We create computational, theoretical, mathematical models that essentially are uh, a big bang on a hard drive and we create as many of them as we can think of and then we go look at the observational data and we say okay well which one of all of these models we've made fits what we see in real life what fits the data and we put those we put the closest model with the data and then we refine the model to match the data better. Because if we refine the model to fit the data, that means our model is actually describing the universe as we have seen it, as we have observed. So then we do more observations that refines the model. We refine the model and it predicts what the observation should now be. And we go out and make more observations to see if that's what it really is. And it's a continual process of model Um, sort of refining uh, in order to get to a point where we can say, okay, now we can actually explain every point along which the universe has developed because we have found a model that perfectly fits the data that we have. The most recent statistical model for the distribution of the cosmic microwave background radiation actually fits um, only fits the cold spot with a special, with a special mathematical function which has a nickname of a Mexican hat function because it's a Gaussian curve that dips below the, the axis. <clears throat> Sorry. That's kind of like, that's kind of theoretical. And there.
0: that's the Mexican hat.
4: Yeah. It's called the Mexican hat <laughs> theory. Um, and it puts the cold spot where it is. If you look uh, at the data, with a different statistical model, the cold spot is not there anymore. They have refined the statistical models now to the point that they still fit the data and the cold spot is gone. So predicted future work on this particular topic is leaning towards uh, our data and our models were still not refined to the point that we had accurate enough representation of what was there, and it's likely that the the cosmological cold spot was just a statistical anomaly in the data. So it's probably not even there.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that is less exciting than the answer. All of that, that wraps that up to. It um, was a clickbait eh. article, you dimwit. I told you it would break your heart.
0: Science writing is bad. I I actually feel incredibly fulfilled by that.
4: Yeah, no, that—that was
2: everything
1: that I wanted it to be, and then I was hoping I fucking love science. I was hoping it'd just be—it's an infinite universe. Maybe these things can happen.
4: Well, you know, Uh. there's always that. (laughs) That was awesome. That was one of those.
3: That was like an old man joke where it takes a long time. There's a lot of details, a lot of setup, and then the punchline's like, (laughs) the parrot has the brick. (laughs) (laughs) That's <laughs> <Right. laughs> uh, though. That's fucking great, man. Well, yeah, I, actually,
2: I, I feel more educated as a human being. Now. I know,
4: I
3: know now about uh, cosmic background radiation, which I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the red shift gang and the blue shift gang are mortal enemies. Oh yes. Um, and and you better bet that I'm going to be red shifting people all day tomorrow. <laughs>
4: pushing them away
3: from you.
4: Uh-huh. Have you ever Ryan, have you ever seen I mean there's a really popular bumper sticker that physicists have that you know like a lot of my colleagues have it's a blue bumper sticker that says uh, if this sticker looks red you're going too fast. <laughs> or if it no, I got it backwards. If this sticker looks blue you're going too fast and it's a red sticker. See?
0: Nothing like I, physicist uh, meta humor to really Yeah,
4: exactly. I can't even get it right. I can't even get it right. I'm a scientist, not a comedian. <laughs> well, stay stay in your lane, pal. Exactly.
3: Uh. Well, I you know I, I I can go to bed fulfilled if I yeah. had to. That was wonderful. You Thank have,
4: you. Yeah, no problem. I was happy to be here. Well, Our you pleasure.
3: Are, uh, you you will you will come on again. I think we might just pepper you with um cosmological questions. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, a month from now or something.
4: Yeah, that would be, uh, that would be very interesting. I did study, so my, my focus is primarily in acoustic phenomena in physics. And one of the things I did study in graduate school was uh, baryonic expansion, like, uh, basically like booms, booms in the cosmic microwave background, like, uh, like the big baryonic sound waves that, that created the filaments of galaxies that, uh, that sort of extent So just cosmic bass waves? Yeah. Yeah, like uh, Mother Nature You're had my a My best friend now. Mother Nature had a giant bass box and just, you know, cranked it.
0: Mother Nature's yes. giant okay. bass box.
3: <laughs> yeah, the the show titles alone in this uh do review segment have been <laughs> very, abundan- uh, very abundant, a very abundant and and <laughs> abundant <laughs> and, uh, and yes. abundant. Well, uh Brian, thanks for coming on, man. Um, sharing your knowledge and and making us, well, making at least three of the four of us smarter. I, I still, I'm not Absolutely.
4: really sure. <laughs> well, I'm, I was happy to be here. Uh, thanks for having me on.
3: No problem, man. Come uh,
2: back really, again for lighter really quick, topics. Uh, <laughs> <did>
4: somebody say <laughs> where uh, where
2: can our guest uh, find oh, you at and uh, check out yeah, your so podcast? so you can
4: find me at uh, the SciFiPodcast dot com. I am one of the co-hosts of the Sci-Fi Podcast. If you liked or did not like anything I said on this, there is a link on that website that's uh, labeled Ask a Scientist where you can send me a direct email spouting off all sorts of insane and out-there theories of how you think the universe works so that I can either ignore them or send you back something that is basically an emoji shaking its head in disappointment.
3: (laughs) Awesome, man. Well, thank you. You're so welcome. Much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Stay on. safe out there, buddy. Talk to you next time. Thanks. That was. We're gonna make a hard for the listeners who don't know. He what's would have been good to today, have. I'm sorry. Well, we're gonna we're get, we're getting ready to bring on another guest, and it's going to be a hard shift into the other guest. But I, I gotta say that I am a. He put it in ways I actually understood, which was great.
2: Yeah, it seems like he's been around the block a, a, a <laughs> time or two in terms of uh, explaining physics How to somebody.
1: Interacting with
3: people.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> does wonder for podcasts. So,
3: <laughs> what were you gonna say, Nick? <laughs> um, I
0: totally spaced on it. It was something good. I think
2: you you feel more cultured. No,
0: no, no, God, no! Mm. I, I will he, he would have been. It was too much to for. Our uh, we hate. Fast oh. and the Furious episode, mm. or to uh, duke it out with with Doctor Zeitgeist Saganist, as was previously noted.
3: Saganist, which is funny, like it's a <laughs> like it's a uh, religion it's a, or a cult, like it's a cult. Right, I was gonna say religion, but it, it more cult. So yeah, okay. Um, I'm I'm like awake. I'm ready. I'm like three degrees Kelvin. I want a cool pillow, but I'm I'm pretty sure Paul has a cool pillow. <laughs> You're probably the OG right. has. He's got to have.
0: It's yeah, made with uh, some sort of bamboo one. and, and soba
3: kawa uh, noodles.
0: Yeah. <laughs> organic heat transfer via uh, bamboo and saffron.
3: Or, organic heat. It's,
1: it's it's a mixture of hops
3: and ball bearings. Yep. Not quite comfortable. Hops for heat, ball bearings for comfort. bearings for comfort Uh, said no one ever Uh, okay we have another guest I'm bringing him on now he's he's illustrious I think our listeners will like him I I sure hope so. so Uh, is is Mr. Webb on the call with us? Yes, I am. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. How are you? Fa- fantastic. We just we're, we're well
0: versed in particle physics and uh, cosmic anomaly. Oh,
3: yeah. excellence! Now, suddenly. So we can all go home <laughs> now, right? Yeah, we're suddenly physicists, layman <laughs> physicists.
2: Like, <laughs> like if, H- if you want
3: to argue cold spot
0: multiverse theory, we sort of we
2: we are now <laughs> equipped now
3: more yep, we can yeah. hack around. <laughs> We're all shade tree physicists at this point. Shade tree.
0: (laughs) I I got a red shift for your
3: ass. (laughs) Well, um, it has been it's been since your last Kickstarter that you've been on. Uh, uh, We have Mr. Eddie Webb, the creator of Pugmire, amongst other things. And Mm -hmm. you have a current Kickstarter going right now. Yes, I do. And I believe it's about cats.
5: Yes, um, it is called uh, Monarchies of Mao, uh, and it is a companion you say meow? game. Mao, M-A-U, <laughs> uh, like the cat breed. Um, yeah, that's but funny. yes, there are a lot of variations around that, and I can go into that in a second. But um, uh, uh, but basically, this is a companion game set in the same world as Pugmire. So. Um, it's not a source book. It's a complete separate game that happens to feature cats as opposed to dogs. But there are they're cross-compatible. So if you want if you own both books, you could make cat characters and dog characters and run them in the same game if you wanted to.
3: So it's it's not uh, you know, and never the two shall meet type no. scenario.
5: No, but there are um certainly things about portraying uh, a cat and things I wanted to go into like with cat society and the like that I felt that just a straight up uh, source book wouldn't do justice to. It. I wanted to instead make sure that uh, the rules were, were tweaked and the presentation of the book was was modified so that way that experience was, was uh, accentuated. But still, um, there's a, most of that is in how the characters are built, and there's a couple of, of other tweaks and rules here and there, but mostly it's once the characters are built, they can work together. But how the ca- characters are built and the kinds of things they can do are, are distinctly different from dogs, so that way the gameplay is a little different for each side. Um, but if you've played one game, you're going to see a lot that's familiar in the other game.
3: As far as like game mechanics go, there's right. similarity, but from see to me, and I talk about this all the time, and it's it's kind of my crutch, but I. I think character creation in role-playing games is, that's the bee's knees for me. Mm-hmm. And so having read, I think it's your latest Kickstarter update that came through, because uh, I am a backer, I'm proud to say. Yay! Uh, the, uh, yeah. Um, how a cat would get its name, how a cat would have like a, a hidden agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what we talked about earlier today, the, the thought of like the cat's like saving face, Mm-hmm. is so it, it, I, it I love it. it so makes me giggle. It's but it's so cat-ish that it's mm-hmm. it's wonderful.
5: <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um when when I started working on uh a Mount and actually when I worked on Pugmire as well I, I try to blend societies that we recognize in ways that uh, uh you can still get identifiable society out of it um but it's not exactly medieval Europe, for example. Um, uh, So Pugmire uh, definitely was kind of a core of... uh, of English fantasy, but also a bit of, 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 of Russian fantasy um, and, and a little bit of Germanic fantasy to try to get that, that blend going together. With Mao, it's definitely kind of Renaissance Italy It is kind of the, the core of it. And then there's other elements like uh, Prussian military culture, um, a, a dab of of, of uh, Chinese military culture um, to kind of give that distinct thing. But it's definitely the kind of... Um, opening scene of Romeo and Juliet uh, with the two rival families in the streets trying to talk each other up and trying to get the other side to attack first, that kind of face-saving bravado is certainly a piece of Mao.
2: That's fantastic.
5: And in fact, um, one of the elements, I don't know if they made it into the early access or not. Um, but uh, uh, the, uh, cats have a strong dueling culture. Um, in fact, uh, one of their, their tenets is um, always respect an honorable duel. But how they declare uh, a, a duel is because this is a, a culture about to face. Um, uh, even if you hate someone, if they come to your house and inquire for hospitality, you're kind of obligated to at least invite them in and show them basic hospitality. Uh, so if you get invited into your enemy's house and they show you basically, you know, I'll show you the basic courtesy, you find something of theirs that is very valuable. And as you're staring at them, you knock it off. And that's how you declare a duel.
3: <laughs> <laughs> like any cat would. <laughs> we all know that cats are just, they're assholes. I mean, that's what they are they, they, their whole life. That's what they've lived to be. That's what they aspire to, at least in my opinion. I could. The fact that because I've I've had a cat look at me, and push something off a ledge, right? He's, he's, Everyone has. So, he wants sure. to duel you, obviously. I love that. Well, now I know. Now he's not just being an ass. He just he wants to duel. So he demands I,
5: satisfaction for something you have done.
3: <laughs> Refill the food bowl, damn it!
1: It's been empty for three seconds. Right you're the jerk (laughs) that's fantastic
2: i could only imagine how petty they are like just as a whole
5: well that's one thing that actually uh i I worked uh uh, very hard on is because it's so easy to slide the catch stereotype into petty vindictive jerk um and i wanted to allow for that obviously you know that people who really want to explore that i want to sure that there's a uh an avenue for that, um, but also, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, the idea of uh, cats as the kind of uh, uh, silence protector—the ones, you know, that that work with uh, the the rest of, of their little kind of of, of pack of, of cats. There's a lot of one-upmanship among them. Certainly, it's like, yeah, you know, you know, I'm I'm awesome, and you have to recognize how awesome I am. But also, cats do have communal community you know the cats do kind of like to live together they they're social creatures right. um and uh, also cats are are very loyal the difference is like for pugmire um a lot of that kind of, of loyalty is, is kind of bottom up. It's the, you know, you're the you're the pack alpha or you're human and you know, you know, you're better than me, so I'm gonna support you. And for cats, it's a lot more of, yeah, kid, you're not as cool as me. So let me let me take you under my wing and show you how cool I am and maybe some of that will rub off on you. So there's still a camaraderie there, but there is definitely a different dynamic. And that's one of the things I was I'm playing with as I work on this book is there's subtle tweaks to uh, the mechanics, but definitely the society, but like in terms of how the game plays, there's little elements that I've kind of modified to help to emphasize that slightly different level of, of camaraderie and way they interact. So definitely Mal ends up being, a more political game, Um, uh, you know, to use a world of darkness analogy, it's a little more vampire than say the werewolf style of something like Pugmire. Um, There's a lot more kind of the different houses of of cats. There are six different major houses and they have different agendas and goals and they're normally working together And in fact, most of them do want to work together, but they want to work together in a way where their group is recognized as being slightly better than everyone else. So, that of course will obviously go well, and everything will be fine as a result of that. <laughs> um, but it, it does mean that you know it, it gives some some texture and flavor to the character interaction. So you have like the the kind of we're all together, you know, in the in the middle of the forest, and monster can eat us. So yeah, we're going to work together, and we're going to be friends, and we're going to try to strive to, to persevere through that dangerous situation. And then we get back home and it's like, well, yeah, but my family needs this thing and you have that thing. And so maybe we, you know, not quite as close as we were back when we were in deadly danger. Um, so there's a different kind of, of, of like I said, texture and, and dynamic that I think is really interesting. And again, it evokes that cat feeling, but doesn't necessarily make them always opportunistic jerks. You know, they, they can genuinely have friendship and camaraderie, and they, they can have loyalty even to each other. Um, but there's always going to be uh, a something drawing them in different directions. Something always pushing them to, to, to maximize their own potential. Like, for example, um, in Pugmire, a, a fair number of the powers are... I want to make you do something cool. Um, Like, I'm going to help you get up because you're injured, or I'm going to give you an extra benefit. Um, And it's definitely a kind of, I'm passing on my cool thing onto you to make help you out. Uh, With Mao, it's as my power gets better, everybody else gets a splash benefit from that. Mm, Um, So that. That's a cool mechanic. Yeah, like for example, uh, the martial arts power. Um, one of, uh, the the core power is you can do martial arts. One of the refinements the, when you get higher level is that everyone around you that fills the qualifications can also do martial arts. Um, that kind of the in the the kung fu movie where everyone's talking and doing normal things, and someone suddenly busts up with with kung fu and everyone around immediately can do kung fu so i mean it's kind of a a nod to that trope but also from a mechanical perspective it's i'm really cool so everyone else near me gets to be a little bit cooler as well so it encourages that kind of i want to maximize how effective i am because everyone benefits if you just hang out with me being super cool i love that
2: really awesome mechanically I, i really dig that I hadn't I, I guess I hadn't really thought about that uh, in terms of Pugmire before. Uh, it, it is a very, very support based mm-hmm. system uh, compared to a lot of the other like role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder or something along those lines.
5: right. I mean, the uh, the stray calling in Pugmire is is the only one that kind of really stands alone. And that's by design that they're the one they're the outsiders of the free dogs, so they kind of have to exist in isolation. Um, but also, from a, a purely from a design perspective, it's there a bit of the hub. Um, is everyone kind of throws so could throw support onto uh, uh, the stray, make him really buff, and send him into extremely dangerous situations. And that's a very viable dynamic. Um, in gameplay, I find what happens a little more often is the stray ends up tanking and moving to help the other characters out because they're strong and flexible in terms of moving around from a dynamic perspective. So they're helping out, but they have to help out by physically going to that person and doing something, whereas the other primary callings are, are much more along the lines of my friend over there needs help now, and they could just do a thing, and they suddenly get help. The the, the stray has to actually run around to provide that help, and that's, again, to provide a specific kind of group dynamic whereas again with cats it's you can go off and do your separate cool things but if you all group together everyone's going to start getting more and more benefit from being around you and therefore there's more incentive to work together because we all benefit from working together so with with pugmire it was we work together because that's what dogs do with cats it's what's in it for me oh well here's the answer what's in it for me so yeah uh, you are kind of being opportunistic but the opportunity is also very easy to grab so there's no reason to continue to be opportunistic
1: that's fantastic i love that
2: Hmm. when uh when's maddie gonna start running her game joe so i can hurry up (laughs) and get my uh get my Uh, it she's
1: working on it she's working on it um uh Sorry, I just got a text. that distracted me. Um, uh, yeah, so so my wife is my wife, Maddie, has actually never uh, played a role playing game before. Pugmire is is kind of going to be her first one, oh, wow. and so she, uh, I, I let her look at the PDF, and so she has been just going through that like crazy. And uh, of course, as as soon as I got the the Mao early release, I, I showed that to her as well, and she's she's been just eating it up like like nuts. Awesome. Um, which is yeah, it's great because uh, I love to play role playing games, um, and and so that means that I get to be the role player, and and she gets to to DM, and so it's kind of it's cool for both of us. Um, but she actually, uh, I told her you were going to be on here, and she actually gave me a list of questions.
5: <laughs> Fair enough.
1: Uh, if you don't mind. No, mom means. Um uh the first question she she wants me to ask is uh what kind of masterwork relics did the noble houses protect? Uh
5: that's really actually interesting. Um uh are you talking about for Mao or for um Pugmire?
1: Um I think she means for Pugmire.
5: Okay. Um so it it, it basically there's no hard and firm uh, uh defining line it depends on how you want to run your game uh, but in general it's it's something that's substantive uh, like if you come back and say i found this potion of healing yeah that that's great that's not really helpful and promoting pugmire um but you say i found this magic sword that was used by king vincent pug when he first founded the kingdom that's a huge difference. Uh, uh, so uh, it really comes down to is if you bring back something that that is substantive and increases Pugmire's either defensive capability or their knowledge of the world or their knowledge of man, that's usually enough to kind of elevate uh, a dog family into becoming a noble family.
1: Gotcha. So like a teleporter that works one way would be...
5: Potentially, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, it's, you know, hey, this, this allows us to escape from dangerous situations. So that's going to be very helpful. Um, But, you know, on the flip side is if, say, the Poodle family has brought forth uh, this... um, uh, a magical clock that, when it chimes, allows everyone nearby to recover their injuries. And then the Pomeranian family comes along and has a magical clock that, when it chimes, everyone heals her injuries. she's like, well, we already got one of those. <laughs> and the mm-hmm. poodles brought it first, so it's cool. It's very useful, but not enough to actually elevate you. So so there's also a bit of, uh, of, of uniqueness that's kind of implied there. But again, that's kind of how I envision it. I intentionally left it a little vague because I want guides and groups to be able to explore what that means on the ruin. I've heard some really kind of interesting stories about how people have approached that. You know, some things like, well, we found this item, but it s- reveals some things about man that we're not sure other dogs are meant to know. So do we bring it back to elevate this poor family that we want to help, or do we keep it for mm-hmm. ourselves so that knowledge never gets out? And that's the kind of stuff I think is really interesting that people are really digging into with this game.
1: Absolutely, that's fantastic. A really good answer. Uh, very helpful. Um, and then now I've got uh, sort of a silly question and a serious question. Which would you <laughs> rather have first? Uh, let's do a silly one first. <laughs> so, uh, are you familiar with the? Um, uh, I forget what it's called the the program that spits out D and D spells based on the uh, other the list of spells from like AD and D five.
5: I think so. Is that like the AI that makes mm-hmm. up new spells? Yeah, yeah. Yep, that, yeah. yep.
1: So one one of the spells that spit out recently was Barking Sphere. <laughs> and she would like to know what you think the effects of Barking Sphere would be. Uh,
5: so I'm guessing Barking Sphere, uh, that would definitely be an artisan spell. Um, probably first or second level, I'd say. Um, uh, and the idea is that it, it's it would be a... Uh, off the top of my head, like a two die six uh, a thunder attack because it's a sonic attack. So basically, you 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 take your focus and you you sh- shout out what you want to do, and this, this kind of like ball of just cacophonous, barking noise just pummets towards your opponent, and they just become buffeted by all the and it does damage to them from so, so using thunder damage.
3: <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, that's
1: great.
5: That's a really – was, that, oh, was man. that
3: Was that an impromptu yes. Hugmire spell? Yes. Fuck
5: yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it, that's a, part of the thing that I don't – it's funny. I don't actually talk about this very often, but um, one of the things that I did uh, when I when I reverse engineered D&D 5 um, is that I, I thought about every aspect of the game before I either put it back in or modified it. I didn't just say, nope, oh, this works. It's done. Um, and part of that was the damage types. And I thought, okay, you know, in the far future setting that this is implied, how do I reinterpret those back to those fantasy types? And and some people noticed, like, the wording's a little different. Like, I, I changed fire damage to heat damage, um, you know, uh, ice damage to cold damage, that kind of stuff to kind of make it a little vaguer, but like thunder damage is exclusively kind of sonic attacks. Um, uh, uh, Necrotic is also things like, you know, nanites eating your body away. Mm. That's still necrotic damage. Lightning is also covers things like lasers and plasma bolts. Um, So by using those fantasy language to define things like plasma guns, I get something like, you know, wand of lightning. Yes, but it's a plasma rifle. And in my head, I know it's a plasma rifle, but I'm using only the fantasy language that D&D 5 Gives me, and so I'm able to kind of recode these slightly sci-fi concepts into a pure fantasy setting, while still keeping a, a slightly homogenized view of that world in my head. So I can do this kind of impromptu things because I go, okay, um, Sonic damage has thunder, cool. Um, here's roughly how the spells work. I can pull those together, so I can kind of cobble things, and I did that. Because as people dig into the system, they can start pulling that stuff apart and reputting it together in their own image. I, I intentionally mm. want to make sure there's a really consistent logic to everything so that way people can then extrapolate that to their groups and go, okay, well, I- eyeballing this um, – I- how do I do an iPad? Okay, uh, let's see. It's an iPad. It's got a camera on it and, we'll say, a, a Skype kind of software installment, that's a scrying spell, that's, mo- that's bound to this artifact, so we'll call it a, a tablet of scrying, and it does basically the effect of a scry spell. Boom, done, and I, that's, again, off the top of my head, but I'm able to kind of reverse engineer, what does it do? Okay, here's the pieces of Pugmire and how it works, now I can put it together in a new shape.
1: That is both fantastic and a perfect segue into the last question. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, this one's a two-parter. Okay. First part, how do you envision a battle against demons? would dogs encounter those already possessed or could player characters be susceptible to possession themselves? Mm-hmm. Um, so sort but, of like, um, uh, since, since demons are basically uh, sickness, mm-hmm. uh, is, is there like an embodied form of it or? Um, so
5: um, the answer is, is both. Uh, and, and the idea is that um, one of the kind of secrets of the setting, which I talked about a little bit in the book uh, is that the unseen are not the homogenized force that the dogs believe them to be. Um, when you say when you have a tenant like um, defends against the, defend all against the unseen, it implies the unseen is this kind of enemy that does things consistently in a cohesive fashion, and it's not true. Uh, the unseen is ultimately just a bunch of things that are lumped together in the dogs' minds, and they have some similar traits uh, uh, and abilities to work together um that's why from a mechanical standpoint they have a template and you can keep hours of a template but they don't have the same strategy so the lower level demons you have your hellhounds and your um uh, floating flaming skulls and the like and those are basically kind of the for lack of a term animal intelligence style demons they go out Hmm. they wreck stuff uh, dogs hunt them down. They stop them from wrecking stuff. Hooray, we feed the unseen. But as you get more and more powerful, they become kind of two rough spurs, one of which is the incredibly overtly blunt style of unseen. So you have your big flaming demons there wrecking, you know, Balrog-style wrecking the countryside. And then you have your much more insidious possession-style demons uh, that do actually um, uh, subvert dogs. Um, and that's one of the elements of the game there's a, a group called the friends of man which are basically a hyper patriotic secret society inside pugmire they believe that man gave them a mandate which is that you know, something along the lines of do not let, suffer a cat to live you know it's like dogs mm. and cats were meant by man to fight man tells us dogs and cats do not play well together mm-hmm. um and so by us trying to make peace with now we are going against man's will um, but the reality is the movers shakers behind the Friends of Man are possessed by the Unseen. Mm. So the Unseen are fanning the flames of this existing animosity and turning it into a long-term plan. So there are some Unseen that do actually subvert dogs, sometimes on a short-term basis, like you know resurrecting their body and possessing them, sometimes on a long-term basis, where they slowly turn them mad and subvert them and corrupt them from inside society. Um, but the dogs don't. Quite grasp as much about um, the, the how dangerous that is. The cats, on the other hand, completely understands mm-hmm. that the, this kind of subversive style of unseen is very, very bad. Um, in fact, um, they had an entire uh, a family, uh, entire uh, a house of cats fall to the unseen by this internal corruption, and they do not want the dogs to know about this. Uh, so they're kind of. Part, you know, They have a lot of secrets and mystery because they don't know if any of the cats around them could potentially be subverted by the unseen, but they want to constantly challenge other cats to prove that they're not being subverted. Mm. But dogs they see as too stupid to recognize as danger, mm-hmm. but if you tell them, that will just give the unseen more fuel, so they have mm. to keep dogs in the dark while simultaneously fighting the Unseen, whereas dogs are like going, I killed a hellhound. The, the Unseen is solved. You know, So, I mean, dogs are very mm-hmm. kind of uh, of the physical world. It's like, you know, the demons are a physical threat to our families and to our livelihoods. And we have to destroy them. The cats see the Unseen as much more of a metaphysical threat. Gotcha. Uh, they're, they're a potential threat to our society. And also, that's something you used to put your paw on and defeat. So that's why dogs and cats are just approaching the Unseen from ideologically opposite standpoints, but they both actually want the same thing. So you have this weird balance of On the surface, it looks like if we just sat down and worked on things, everything would be fine. But they have two completely different viewpoints on what is a threat. You know, from a dog perspective, it's like you're sitting here talking about these demons that will take years to support us, but there's a guy right there that's getting ready to threaten my family right now. I don't understand why we're focusing on this potential long term threat when that guy right there can eat me and we need to stop him. And the cats are like, I can't even touch that giant guy, but I know. How politics work. I know how people work, and I know how this kind of stuff gets in your head, so I can stop that. So it. So again, it's the, it's the same category of enemy, but it's not one homogenized hierarchy. There's not like there's a, a not like Judeo-Christian myth where there's a hierarchy of demons that go back to one guy and he gives them all marching orders. That's not at all. They're just kind of a chaotic mess of a category of things that all have wildly conflicting plans, but all of them ultimately around they know that they don't want what civilization brings. Civilization brings stifling uh, 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 order, and when order comes, demons get destroyed. So the only way for demons to survive and thrive is in chaotic environments. So they have to undo status quo. They have to subvert things. That's, I love
1: that. (laughs) It reminds me of why I have been so excited for Monarchies of Mao since we had you on to talk about Pugmire.
3: Yes. Well, well, one of the things that I remember when you were on talking about Pugmire, I remember – I mean the obvious question, I'm sure you got it a ton, was are you going to do anything with cats? Right. And, and so the question I'm asking now is, is there like a, the Isle of Mies or <laughs> uh, Mice and Guard? Is that a companion that's coming out uh, in a couple years or?
5: So um, uh, 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 there's kind of a short and long answer. Short answer is I do have ideas for rats and mice. Um, uh, the slightly long, longer answer is that, uh, so many people wanted to do cats and I definitely wanted to do cats. And I knew that cats were going to be a very specific role I wanted to fill in the world. So moving from Pugmire to a amount was, was a no brainer. It's like, you know, it's the next companion game. We got the first one done move to the next one. Boom. Great. And they're so obviously diametric and pe- the, the dog versus cat dichotomy, Plus, the people who have dogs and cats, both as pets, there's a great tension there. It was very natural. Um, But I've also found, from a design perspective, that having only two forces that are opposed gets boring pretty quick. Um, It's us versus them. Well, there's no other real variation you can go in there. Um, Mm -hmm. The unseen adds a third barrier, but as I said, they're not really a, a, a culture that you can have ideological conflicts with. They don't want to hang out and talk to you. Or if they do, they're talking to you because they want to get you to do a thing for them. Um, and so mice and rats had, were kind of always in my head as that third leg. Uh, but for a, for a couple of years, I didn't really know what to do with them. Um, I knew that they had uh, um, a cult that was part of, in, a part of their culture. Um, that's the white mice that have come up in both books now. And I knew that they were never going to be this is all rat culture. Rather, these are the radical extremists that uh, rats are like, No, oh God, no, we're not like them. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and the white rights are like going, no, science is everything. Um, but uh, I couldn't figure out what their story was. And then I realized I was talking – I was driving home with my wife actually. Um, we're doing a lot of uh, last-minute things as we prepare to move overseas. And so there's lots of you know driving places and sitting in cars or waiting for things to happen that we have conversations. And uh, through talking with her, she's an anthropologist and very, very smart, mm. much smarter than me. Um, we start talking about cultures and societies, and, and one of the things she's like, I mean, "But the rats, you mentioned the rats don't have a country anymore," um, which is true. In the backstory, the rats, the rats don't talk about it for some reason. The rats and mice, they don't have a land anymore; They're, it's gone. Mm. Um, and she, and she, she, made me realize that the story of the rats and mice are an immigrant story. Uh, their story is told in the margins of both Pugmire and the monarchies. Uh, and they're not embraced by either. I mean, the dogs they're, have a group called ratters. You know, dogs have been known to hunt down rats. Um, cats and mice, animosity goes back all the way to the times of man. So neither dogs nor cats embrace rats or mice. But they just don't hate them. They're just not a thing that they consider to be on their level. Um, and so there's, a, there's a essentially very powerful stuff that you can tell there with, you know, what what is it like when you have no culture of your own anymore, and the cultures you have left to live within don't consider you equals. Um, so I need to figure out how to tell that story in an interesting, engaging way, and whether that ends up being a completely full game for them, or something that gets bolted on to Pugmire and Mao, I'm not entirely sure. I'm thinking it's a full game. I think there's a lot of interesting meat there, and plus... You have, you know, the, uh, the Mouse Guards, the Rats of NIM. There's so much fantasy, anthropomorphic fiction where mice and rats feature prominently. Um, and even, you know, if you slide slightly to things like Hamsters and Redwall and whatnot, sure. um, uh, there's, there's a lot, there's a strong, much stronger bulk of fiction that features them. So I feel like there's a full game in there. Um, I just need to kind of mentally wrap my head around how that's going to look. So that's definitely a several years down the line project. I definitely want to make sure Pungmire's out the door. I want to make sure Mao's out the door. Um, I've got uh, a card game idea that I want to explore for both Pungmire and Mao. Uh, and also, um, one of the things that I've been kicking around is, mm. is a, a, a people have asked for both an adventure path style thing, where there's connected adventures uh, people can, mm. can go through, and also kind of an atlas how to explore the world style. And I feel like combining those into a pirate sourcebook, where I can also work in rules for, like, birds Ooh. and fish, very naturally. <laughs> That's also another idea that I've been kicking around. So, I mean, it, it, it's definitely there are pieces for that. I don't want to get into the cycle of, here's a new game for random animal type.
3: Right, here's like, a, here's right. here's the rabbit game. Right, I don't I mean, want to... As much as I like Watership Down.
5: Yeah, I feel like once you get beyond... Because um, explicitly, the Pugmire world is about our relationship with pets. Right. And so I occasionally get things like, what about tigers and wolves? It's like, no, the, the point of this is that we're taking our relationship with domestic animals, and how do we extrapolate that into a fantasy world and culture? Um, so we, we have playable tigers. It doesn't work the same way. There, there's a piece missing. Plus, we made that game. It's called Werewolf the Apocalypse. Go look it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but, <laughs> I have that, I have you
1: know,
5: so, that game. <laughs> so yeah, see? where tigers? In there. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so, I mean, I, I feel like we told that story, but also specifically there's a kind of a thing here. So there are other pets that people love, and I think that's important. But I feel like the combination of our relationship with the pets and also how fiction treats that relationship with pets, um, dogs, cats, rats, and mice are pretty much the, the, the tent poles. And then beyond that, you start getting into – We can have support material for, but it's not going to sustain. I think a full, complete 256-page book. That's more like here's 50 pages of cool material for the bird kingdoms, you know, the the sky kingdoms of the bird people or whatever.
2: So, so as it's one that's not usually touched on, just because I'm curious on what your take would be. If you had a quick spitball, Mm -hmm. if you had to do like a like a bearded dragon and snake, like a like a lizards and snakes sort of. Keep in uh, mind that
3: Rob here is a Slytherin this
1: Has a snake named Salazar. This is very important. Sitting, no. but not
2: like twenty feet from me. But anyway. um,
5: well, it's not because I just because uh, uh, part of the, uh, uh, the reason why I do this is because I've had a wide variety of pets. One well, night, I did have a ball python for a long time as a pet. Um, so I actually do have thoughts for for lizards and kind of that group. And and right now, uh, the role they have is they're primarily travelers. Um, uh, uh, when I talk about blending cultures, you have that kind of mix of um, uh, of the desert nomads, merchants archetype combined with the um, the, the Russian traveler, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, c- carrying the the heavy cart through the snow between villages. Those kind of cultures combined is where uh, other lizards live. So it's like they're much more, but they live in the spaces where cats and dogs and mice and rats can't live. So They live in the abandoned spaces and they take stuff from the abandoned spaces and bring them back to quote unquote civilization. Um, And then allow that. I mean, again, I don't think it's a full game there, but definitely I do want to explore that at some point in time because I think there's a pretty cool potential for they're not quote unquote barbarians. I definitely try to avoid that term because it's a loaded term, Uh, but they are cultural outsiders. Um, And whereas the rats and mice are cultural outsiders because they have been forced into a diaspora. Uh, Lizards choose to live outside these civilizations, and they they recognize that there's value in connecting with them and exchanging goods with them and to have relationships with them, but they don't want to live there. It's like, yeah, it's too warm, I don't like it here, I'm gonna go back where I came from, uh, where where it's dry, and I can have nice hot rock, and it's great. Um, so so it's, like, it's like you people are nice to hang out with, but I don't want to stay here because this place sucks. Um, and so I think there's an interesting dynamic there. And, then of course, the merchant archetype from fantasy is a perfect role for them. Um, so, so, oh, yeah. so blending those two kind of you know, very, very cold, very, very hot extremes and, and putting them into one kind of group, um, it gives them a role that's also – because the, the other thing is I try very hard not to make sure each of these species ha- ends up sliding into the quote-unquote evil. Area. Mm. It's like those guys are evil because right. they're that. Um, I I explicitly avoid that because I never know. In in ten, 10 years, I may want to do a snake book. I may want to do that, and I, so I never want to cut off those avenues for player exploration. And also, I think it's boring. I think it's a boring thing. The unseen is the only thing that's closest resembling "quote unquote, evil. And I, I use demonic spiritual language because they're 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 constructs. They're not people in the same way that player characters are. Um, there are things that need to be defeated, and I think that that's good for adventure fantasy fiction. Forces forces of entropy. Right, exactly. Uh, they may be anthropomorphized, they may have personalities and voices and bodies, but at the end of the day, they're just going to wreck stuff, and they're not they're, You don't. They're not people you have a conversation with. You don't make treaties with the unseen. They're just going to wreck your stuff. Um, so every other species, if I dig into that, and if I pull it apart, um, uh... uh yeah, you know, I want them to be identifiable. I want them to be something that I uh, "Go, you know, I really want to play that because I don't want to take someone's favorite pet and go, yeah, well, your pet's crap because I've decided they're evil. I don't want to ever do that. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, the nice thing about the way I built this is that because I have room for insane monsters, I can do one-offs that explore. If you want to have your irradiated tiger that has gained sentience and has gone crazy, you could do that as a specific creature rather than a culture. Um, uh, uh, there's a short story in the upcoming Pugamare anthology uh, where there's a, a character who is uh, an elephant, an elephant who's been uplifted. And the elephant believes it's been, it been uplifted since the time of man. It, it feels it's been around for thousands and thousands of years. I remember the time of man. I remember when man made us who we are. He's also completely crazy because if you remember absolutely everything that's happened over thousands of years, you go insane. So you're kind of playing off that memory of an elephant's. Slash almost kind of chthonic elder gods vibe. Um, but that's not something you strap into a race, that's this one elephant in this one place is doing this crazy thing. Um, so that so it allows me to explore that animal vibe, uh, without necessarily turning it into an entire society.
3: That I can, yeah, think. I was just saying that's <laughs> you've covered more bases than I could think to cover. And that's, that's, <laughs> and that's really awesome. I just I just want to let you know that if you want to use the phrase, they're taking the Dachshunds to Meissengard, <laughs> I I give you free will that you don't even have to credit me <laughs> if, if you just want to throw that in there. And I that's one thing
5: that I love about, about this game is that I can sit here for 10 minutes to talk to you about all this deep, intricate, philosophical stuff. Um, but, you know, I can also, in five seconds, run a game and players are taking a ship across the acid sea going oh i'm sick as a dog you know i mean (laughs) throw me a bone here you can make these kinds of puns and they work seamlessly (laughs) within the game and i love that the fact that people are enjoying it because i mean i don't know how you guys table runs but me it's like i can run the deepest darkest called hulu game and there's still gonna be one player my my players cracking jokes no matter what i do so i kind of like let's just (laughs) lean into that (laughs) it's like the players generate these jokes exactly well
3: we're um you have some uh, a str- some stretch goals you're about ready to hit, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is uh, is including a mutual friend of ours, Joseph Caraker, yes, I believe, and that's exciting. So I mm-hmm. hope we hit that. And uh, you, Ma, uh, Mao is already successful on Kickstarter; yes. it is funded. Yes.
5: Yes, correct. It is, I think, five hundred percent funded, something like that. Yeah.
3: Wow. So at, th- at this that's, point, wow, if, if you're it, hmm. If you're listening to the show and you haven't backed it, now is the time to do it. Get it to that next stretch goal. Let's uh, let's let's seven eight hundred percent fund this thing. Yes,
5: absolutely. And also, I mean, uh, for Joe's story in particular, because he he posted about this on Facebook, so I feel like I can talk about it. Um, uh, there's a special kind of element to that as well, is because uh, uh, right when I started working at Pugmire, um, he asked me because I've been in front of them for a decade. It's like you know, hey. Uh, um, uh, uh, the man I live with, he his cat. He really loves his cat named Iliad. Can you do a little special thing for Iliad in the game? So sure. So I made Iliad one of the Mao diplomats to Pugmire. Uh, and then in the process of making the game, uh, Iliad passed, um, and, and so his fame was very kind of broken up about that. Uh, and so when I approached him about writing a story for Mao, uh, he for the first thing he asked me "Can I write a story for Iliad?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure, no problem." So, I mean, so so he's specifically going to be able to write a story about the character based on his family's cat that has passed on. Wow. So, I mean, it's, it's it's a special, emotional thing for him specifically. So he's very excited and invested about trying to hit that stretch goal so he can tell that story. So,
3: yeah, that's uh, that's cathartic as he should be. That's yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, let's get that let's get that thing funded. <laughs> so, uh, as as uh, as maybe you remember at the when we wrap up the show. We we do uh, the little segment, uh, the Geek Week, what we've been geeking on this week. Mm-hmm. And uh, as our guest, you can either go first or last.
5: Up to uh, you. I'll go first, if you don't mind a super super obscure one. I that's, no, that's by all means. That's, that's why we have this segment. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, I have been recently, uh, uh, actually, this is off and on for the past year, but I've been re-watching it uh, because I really find I love it as a, a show called Common Writer um it is a japanese television show it's been off and on the air for like since the 70s uh specifically i'm watching a version called common Writer w um and it's basically fairly standard superhero it's like there's this guy um the there's this opposing organization that's doing evil things technology that that organization's using to do evil things uh they try to convert one person to evil he fights against it and he becomes the good guy using that technology against the bad guys um What's interesting about the Common Writer series is that eat, they do about 45 to 50 episodes a season, and they completely reboot, start all over again, um, wow. completely new cast, completely new characters, a completely new concept. Um, so uh, the the version I'm watching now, Common Writer W, um, it's about a a private detective that um, uses uh, uh, he's fighting against his organization. Uh, that uses injected emotions into people and it it, it, like greed makes the person really really powerful and they shoot gold coins um and you know uh uh, and he's trying to fight against organization but using those same kind of archetypal powers against them uh and he shares a mind with uh this this guy he rescued from that family um and so they actually both inhabit the body at the same time so the 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 w is a pun on double in Japanese. And so basically you have this two people in the same body kind of fighting at the same time. And so you have the, and then like yeah, at the end of the season, they, they have another season after that. It's again, a completely different concept now. It's about using coins to fight against demons. It's it, it's it's amazing to me because it's a kid's show. Um, uh, and it's pretty high production values for a show that crank out over 50 weeks in a year. Cause they do like 40 episodes and then they're done. There's no repeats. And then that's one year's of show. Um, uh, and in the fact that they just get a whole new creative staff and start all over again. So it, it I, I started watching it because I wanted to see how do other cultures tell action stories to their kids, because that's relevant to me, Pugmire. But also, I'm just fascinated by the idea that a franchise that's so confident that just goes, yeah, we could just completely change absolutely everything every year and know that people are going to come back and watch for the next year. It, that's the concept of completely rebooting every single year for. Almost thirty years now is is just mind blowing to me. And I love the fact that I can go, nah, this season's not for me, but the next season's gonna be completely different. It might be really awesome to me.
3: Now, really did cool. I did I miss That's... it? Did you say is this live action? Is it anime? Is
5: it? It's live action. Wow. Um, I mean, it, the 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 special effects are kind of on level of like say a CW show, maybe slightly worse than a CW show. Um, so like it's kind of like supernatural ish in terms of like sci fi or uh, CGI and the like. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they, they shoot live action tw- they're 25 minute episodes, but they do 45, 50 of them a year and like basically take off breaks for like holidays here and there. And like the occasional, you know, we had to be preempted because of a sports or whatever, but other than that, they, and they just roll right to the next one. So, I mean, it's, there's, there's six, I think they celebrated That's 2000 a... episodes recently. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> wow. yeah.
3: Where Where are you watching this at?
5: Um, uh, uh there are not very many legal ways to acquire it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, uh, uh, but uh, there's a website called TV Nihon, uh, N-I-H-O-N. Uh, and what they do is they do fan subbing. So basically they they uh, download the episodes off TV. They they subtitle in English. And they have a firm policy of if any of the stuff they subtitle goes into American distribution, they immediately take it down and encourage people to buy the support. Because their idea is they want people to love it so people will show there's a market so that people will actually import them and properly get proper mm. translation. Um, so there are other sites, but that one is the one I generally go to, and they, they and, and you can download the episodes um, uh, occasionally they'll go back and redo them if they find, like, and they want to update the translation, or if they get a better copy of the episodes um, but uh, they're so fast that uh Comrade are is still playing now uh, um, they'll like, the episodes will go up on Sunday, and they'll have a translation up for down by Tuesday, so I mean, you can watch it kind of week to week, even at a certain point. Wow. That's so yeah, is. super That's obscure. Cool.
3: <laughs> I liked it. I can dig on that. Yeah. Joe, how about you?
1: Um, I'm kind of three things. Uh, one, I am very excited. Uh, by the time this episode airs, I will be back in the the homeland of Indiana.
3: Okay.
2: So I
1: actually, I I'd, I'd like to redo that. I will be back home again in Indiana. So that I can use the old song reference. Um, so, so, that I'm very excited about that. And speaking of things that are related to Indiana, uh, I'm more and more excited for Gen Con.
0: Yeah.
1: Coming yes. up. Just, uh, I, for the first time ever, I followed the, uh, the Gen Con page on Facebook. And so, uh, instead of thinking about it like, oh, cool, I have Gen Con in a couple of months uh, every other week or so. Um, every day or every couple of hours, I get an update that's like, oh shit, Gen Con's coming up. I'm so pumped. (laughs) Uh, so there's that. And then, uh, the, uh, in the state that I'm living in, I'm currently in Connecticut, uh, we're really close to Litchfield. And so this week, my, my wife and I finally got around to going over to the Litchfield distillery and tasting their many varied and sundry, sundry, uh, flavors of bourbon gin and vodka. And, uh, it was tremendous. Um, the bourbon was wonderful. They had, uh, like a regular bourbon. They had one like their, their regular bourbons, two year aged. Uh, they had one that was like, uh, it was a six year aged bourbon that they bought from someone else and then aged again in their own barrels for another four years. So it's a 10 year bourbon, uh, They've got like a a vanilla bean bourbon. They've got one. Uh, this one really interests me, although I don't care for the flavor as much. But uh, after the distilling process and and the aging process, they have to proof the whiskey. They have to bring it back down to a to a level that's bourbonable, I guess. <laughs> and uh, so with this one, instead of proofing it with distilled water, they proof it with cold brew coffee. Hey now. Um, so it's an actual coffee bourbon, which is hey
5: interesting. I'll
3: yeah.
1: Um,
5: I'll, bite. I'll bite. Especially so it, since
3: my new thing has been coffee tonics. I think that might be a, a cool. Yeah.
5: Yeah. I tell you, <laughs>
1: I don't care for cold brew coffee at all, but this is the best way I've ever had it. <laughs> well, bourbon,
3: bourbon, just a spoon. Bourbon does uh, have a coffee. Bourbon helps the... <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. So and and they've got some other bourbon offerings, but uh, the the gin they have is uh, they've got a regular gin, and then they have one where they they made the gin and then they uh, they aged it in bourbon barrels for
3: two years. That's and, that uh, one's the one that intrigued me the most. I, that one's lover, intriguing. I'm a lover of gin and bourbon, so I
1: I think wow. you'd really like it. So, but as a guy who doesn't really like gin, it actually almost made me puke. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, finally... it. I, I almost
5: vomited, but you will think it's great.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's sort of like, I really like
5: Malort, but Ryan doesn't. So wait, well, hey, wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You like Malort? I love Malort. Are you human? Cause I don't think I'm, it's true. Uh, exactly. Well, I'm very, I'm very Catholic. Oh. Okay. So you hate yourself. That's why you drink it. That makes right. more sense. <laughs> <laughs> because malort tastes like what you what happens in your shoes after your dogs peed into it three weeks ago yeah yeah
3: we uh the the best thing about drinking malort is trying to figure out what toast you're going to say before you drink it like uh I've, uh here uh tonight's the night i fight my dad and then you, then you all take a shot of malort i think the best part is tricking your friends into drinking it
5: but, yeah,
1: mm, you must I, I,
5: I have fallen afoul of that particular hobby. <laughs> it's a it's a pain that must be shared. <laughs>
1: well, but, uh, uh, and then finally, they they do a vodka at this uh, this distillery. That is, uh, I've had vodka from Russia, and this is almost as good as that. Ooh. So, uh, Litchfield Distillery. Right. They're only right now in in distribution in Connecticut, New York, and Massachusetts. Uh, but if you're interested, they are looking to branch out. So, you know, write your congressman or whatever.
3: <laughs> See how that goes.
1: <laughs> if you can get a hold of them, uh, it's tough these days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rob, what are you geeking on this week? Uh, so, I recently
2: downloaded a game for my computer called Stellaris. Which is basically like Age of Empires or Civilization, but in space, and you get to create your own race and culture. And I have very quickly fallen down the rabbit hole of this game. Uh, the like plot hooks that it has, as you're like just venturing out into the galaxy and exploring stuff. The like, whenever you first make contact with another alien race, is like a, a ridiculously exhilarating feeling, and then you just have to deal with their bullshit for the rest of the game. Um, but it's, uh, it's phenomenal. Uh, I really, really enjoy it. Uh, it's, uh, a game where you're kind of micromanaging an empire, essentially, that spans across the galaxy, uh, as you're expanding and dealing with other alien empires. Uh, and, uh... Yeah, no, I could not highly recommend this game enough. Uh, unfortunately, it will be off of hum- uh, Humble Bundle whenever it, uh, whenever this episode goes live. But if you are interested in uh, sci-fi at all or uh, like any sort of empire builder type games like uh, Age of Empires or Civilization, I could not highly recommend this enough.
5: Yeah, similarly, have you also played so. uh, Endless Space?
2: I haven't, but a bunch of my friends started talking about that today, so I'm, I'm going to take a look into it at the very yeah, least. Yeah, I recommend
5: that, too. It's not quite as much building your own culture thing, but it, it's a lot more streamlined version of that formula. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, it, it's, I found it was really great for, oh, I've got like 20 minutes to kill, um, so I'll, I'll – check a few planets, uh, pick a few fights and get like a eight turns in. Um, uh, and so you feel like you're making some progress in short periods of time, uh, as opposed to Stellaris, which is, but like you said much more of a rabbit hole. Where like, I'm just, I'm going to sit down and then I'm going to play this. Gonna be I'm going to sit down
2: for six hours right. in one sitting. Also
5: awesome. But it's a very different kind of awesome.
2: Yes. It's a commitment yes. is what it really is. It's a it's a blast, but it is absolutely endless. Commitment. Space is
5: more of a fling, a date.
3: <laughs> uh, Rye guy, what about you, my man? Uh, well, I finally got the finishing touches put on my uh, my rose tattoos. I now have three uh, of Lyanna Stark's blue winter roses on my on my nice. arm, which I'm very uh, happy with how they turned out. Uh, they were black and gray for a long time, but I got the blue added and. Uh, Uh, Because I trust my tattoo artist. Uh, I let him pick the color blue, and I could not be happier.
1: Fantastic.
3: Um, Yeah, yeah, really pumped about that. And I think we're going to add a couple more roses. But uh, um, I'm also... um, Speaking of Catholicism, as we were so briefly, um, my wife and I have found a new show on Netflix called The Keepers. And... um, in the vein of, uh, I'm sure everyone here has watched Making a Murderer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a show similar to that. It's a documentary told in, you know, I think it's like 13 episodes um, about the death of a nun in 19 uh, late 1960s Baltimore. And um, I'm not going to get into it on the show here uh, because I really don't want to. Mm-hmm. it's a, it's more it's a spoiler thing but I also just it's it's such a disturbing show like it's mm-hmm. like a um it will make you like visibly angry um mm-hmm. so I don't know why I'm watching it except for the fact that now I feel like like I have to mm-hmm. you know <laughs> You're I, well I'm at invested this point. in it and I, I feel like there's like almost it's like a weird guilt thing like i I need to hear this these people's stories um it's extremely well done it's extremely it's not for the faint of heart um, I do recommend it because I misery loves company um, <laughs> and I, I want to be able to talk to someone about it at, at some point in my life but it, it's very much like the the making a murderer where um, I think it's going to be um, if you haven't seen it pop up on your Facebook feed yet I think wait for it it's going to be a very revealing thing and this was a this was a, a thing that happened uh, just a... Uh, um when 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 the story comes to light in about episode three as to what we're actually talking about, the meat and potatoes of this documentary, it was about five years before the uh the Boston spotlight stories mm-hmm. um came to light. so if you can under if you can understand what vein I'm talking about when it comes to anger, uh that's where I'm at. so but yeah, no, yeah, uh, really uplifting stuff um. Yeah. <laughs> You know, cool As boozes, little- real cool boozes I am booze. so glad I went first now. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's 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 what I'm geeking on this week, watching Netflix with my wife and Tattooed Roses. Uh, Eddie, where can our listeners uh, find uh, Mal? Where can they find you if they wanted to, to, to see what you're up to, uh, et cetera, et cetera?
5: Uh, so the uh, easiest route, if people are just looking for kind of the central hub of all my stuff, is uh, my company's website, pugsteady.com. Um P U G S T E A D Y dot That's where I have uh, a lot of my Pugmire stuff and also uh, my consulting services and the like. There's a link there to my personal blog, which is much more me kind of rambling about things. I talk about Sherlock Holmes, I talk about um, what's going on, I'm just gonna start talking about my move to Ireland there. Uh, and that's Eddie Fate, E D D Y F A T E dot com. Uh, and if you want to get in on the Mao Kickstarter, just go to Kickstarter, look for Monarchies of Mao, M-A-U, uh, and you'll they'll pop right up.
3: Awesome, man. Um, appreciate you coming on. Congratulations on another great Kickstarter. Thank you and, so much. Uh, this episode will air uh, the following Saturday in the morning, and uh, we'll I'll tag you in it on Facebook, and we'll
5: we'll uh, we'll share the word on our end. That'd be great. Thank you so much. No problem, man. Appreciate it. Talk to you
3: guys later. Yep. Bye. <laughs> Ain't that about right? Oh shit. Tell me I I'm I'm gonna own a game about mice. It's a- <laughs> Oh, wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. That I'll tell you what, that was a... Uh, that was a big episode, guys.
2: It was very big. I liked it. That was a
3: big episode. Ambitious. It was ambitious. I really, I'll tell you, I uh, I could have, I could have uh, astrophysicist nonsense shoved up my keister for all about day. An, all day. For about day. another, about another three years, I could have sat and listened to him talk. Yes, and I
2: would have only become a better man for it.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, you're not gonna become a worse man. So, anyway I'm pretty sure somewhere towards the end here yeah at some point there's going to be plugs
0: plugs Nico here be sure to follow us on Facebook Chap Snatter and listen to our twats especially from Rob Bass as he will keep you up to date on all the latest and greatest going on with the show also follow us on YouTube iTunes and RedTube to five stars we love
1: you. Hello, this is Sherlock Holmes. If you can't get enough Cartoon Joe, check out him. Check him out on this this freaking show podcast on uh, Saturday mornings at eleven a.m. Get on over to our Patreon at
2: patreon.com/slash/geekcastlive for special content perks and that warm fuzzy feeling that you're doing something awesome and helping out our podcast. We wouldn't be anywhere without you guys, and we look forward to bringing you geeky content for a long time to come.